This episode has been sponsored by Connor Insurance, an auto owner's insurance company. Hi, this is April at Connor Insurance. Prescription costs continue to rise each year. GoodRx is an app that you and your employees can use to find discounts on many prescriptions. If you regularly take a prescription that costs over $250 per month, you should look into an organization called Rx Help Centers. Visit us at ConnorINS.com. Shepherd has been serving the children of Indianapolis and helping families for 34 years. We work to break the cycle of poverty on the near east side of Indianapolis because we love the children in our neighborhood. We are privileged to watch our neighbors grow physically, emotionally, spiritually, and academically through the relationships we build every day. Partnered with Shepherd by donating $34 to celebrate 34 years. Visit shepherdcommunity.org slash BLF to join us. And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. On today's show, Ray sits down with John Busacher, founder of LifeWorth LLC. I have certain desires, but I want to be checking those desires regularly against the desires of God, is what I want, what He wants for me to deliver through my life and through my marriage and through my parenting and through my business and through my grandparenting. It's an extremely important question. It's the first question that Jesus asks, what do you want? Well, hello, everyone. This is Ray Hilbert. I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith, and we are so excited that you've joined us for another episode of the program where we talk about the intersection of life and faith and business and leadership. And we get the opportunity here to travel the country north to south, east to west, and talk with some of the most amazing Christ followers in business and in leadership in the marketplace. We hear their stories, we hear their successes and the principles and values that drive them on a daily basis. I am in beautiful Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and we are going to interview someone I know you're gonna love. He's becoming a, a dear friend of mine, John Busecker, the founder of LifeWorth LLC. He is a personal leadership development coach and consultant and speaker and he has worked with leaders on six continents. John, welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Thanks, Ray, and welcome to the Twin Cities. We uh, provided you with a perfect day here today. (laughs) It's incredible. Uh, As we're recording this, uh, it's a beautiful summer day, mid-80s, virtually no humidity. Uh, We're going to go catch a ball game tonight. We are. I was going to tell you that it's like this every day here in the Twin Cities, but you know better coming from Indianapolis, so... But it's gorgeous <laughs> well, today. Well, you know, Truth at Work is the host ministry here at Bottom Line Faith, and so we want to tell the truth. Truth. We're not truth, a sound of voice. Right. It's, not, like, it's like San Diego out there today. Not just at work, but everywhere, right? Yes. That's, that's right. Well, well, John, why don't you take just a moment as we get started here and, and give our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit. Tell us about your you know, background, where you grew up, a little bit about your, your faith foundation, those sorts mm. of things. Well, I'm a native of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My wife and I both grew up in Milwaukee. Uh, We were high school sweethearts, and uh, we just celebrated uh, this past weekend our 40th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. The work that I'm doing today is actually my third career. Mm. Uh, I I have an undergraduate degree in psychology and education. I was a high school counselor and educator for a number of years. 
and then went into financial services where I was both a financial advisor and then a practice leader for a total of 14 years. And then the last 25 years, I've been in this area of leadership development, um, first for the first 20 years as partner and then president of a consulting firm here in the Twin Cities. And then the last five years, I've had my own leadership practice really focused on the personal side of leadership, who you are and how you carry yourself with character and integrity so that people might actually want to follow you. Fantastic. Well, help me understand where did this passion for leadership come from and particularly the desire to help others develop as leaders? Where Mm. where did all that come from? I've been uh, blessed over the years in different uh, stages of my life to have uh, good mentors, um, to be around and to learn from good leaders. I've worked uh, at times with a person who one of his sayings is, it's the leader, it's always the leader. So when businesses flourish, there's a leadership component of that always. The desire to help grow and to nurture and to support leaders has, I think, been in there a long time, partly planted by being uh, a student of it and by having the benefit of being with some good leaders. As I've, particularly the last 25 years, had the profound privilege of, of working with some really fine and some not very fine leaders, um, it actually continues to fuel that desire to continue to grow myself and to be of service to others. Yeah. So you've authored three books. One is titled Do Less, Be More, The Life-Changing Power of Focus. Another one called Dare to Answer, Eight Questions That Awaken Your Faith. And Inspiring Generosity, Stories of Faith and Grace in Art. For you, tell us a little bit, what's that process look like? How do you develop the, the topic, the title? How do you actually produce the words on the page? What does that look like for you as a creative? How I started is tied intimately to my faith journey. So let me start there, and then I'll come back a little bit to the process, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Perfect. So I grew up in a really nice, wonderful family, church-going family, um, Christian parents. Um, I went to a, a Lutheran elementary school, Lutheran high school, Lutheran college. But as, as we moved from Seattle to the Twin Cities, um, I was in my mid-30s. At that point in my life yet, even though we were Sunday going to church sort of folks, my wife Carol and me both, and I had never read Scripture, ever read Scripture. And you're in your 30s. I'm in my 30s, Yeah, in, including that pedigree of having grown up in this family and going to those schools. And, yeah. and I was introduced to a, a gentleman. He actually taught a class um, that took people cover to cover through Scripture in a year. I had no desire of going to this class that took people cover to cover through Scripture. I had a friend who kept on asking me to go to the class. I kept on saying I really wasn't interested. And finally, just to get him to stop asking me, (laughs) I finally agreed to go to the first night of the class to just audit it, punch the clock, you know, tick the box, and then then say, "I, I really, this isn't in my deal. And so... Well, the deal with the class was in order to attend the lecture that Monty would give every Tuesday night for two hours, you had to write a paper in advance. So whatever he was going to be teaching on, whatever section of scripture, you had to write a paper in advance and come prepared with that paper. And he would stand at the door with his handout to receive the papers. And if you showed up without one, he'd go, hope you come back next week. And you couldn't gain entry to the lecture. Well, it was in the course of that, of writing the papers, that he 
eventually pulled me aside and said, when you do a leadership course or whatever you do in leadership, what do you leave behind? And I said, well, you know, we've got some handouts and stuff. And he goes, you, you can write, you should write a book. And so actually in most cases, mm. it, it, I really had no desire to do this, just like I had no desire to attend his class. But it, it often takes the encouragement of somebody else to begin with. And it takes some shepherding, I think, in order to do it. So he encouraged me and actually wouldn't let it go. He was a persistent old guy, and so he just wouldn't let it go. And so I started writing. And my process, so I'm a momentum writer. Mm -hmm. I, I need to be writing regularly in order to write well. So I do. I write regularly. My, I'm an early morning writer. That's when my mind is usually clearest. And the way that I go about the process, so the first book that I wrote was originally titled Eight Questions God Can't Answer. Hmm. And it's a book on Jesus's questions because his principal methodology for teaching was to ask questions. In the four gospels, he, he asks give or take 125 discrete questions. Most often when he's asked a question, he answers with a question. Most often when he invites someone into a conversation, it's with a question. He tells 40 stories, which we call parables, and he does 35 miracles. So kind of like when all else fails, he does a miracle. <laughs> so, so I wrote a book on Jesus' questions, and the way, that I, the way that I write that and every other book is to just begin accumulating content. It's very old school in hanging folders that pertain to what I think is an architecture for a book that then becomes eventually the book. Fantastic. So you mentioned that first book, which you ultimately named Dare to Answer. Dare to Answer. Eight Questions That Awaken Your Faith. What would be just one or two very provocative questions from the book that our audience would be interested to hear? Virtually the first question that Jesus asked in his public ministry, there are these two disciples of John that are following behind Jesus and they're kind of traipsing along behind him. And it's at one point he turns around and fixes his gaze right on them and says, what do you want? Which is, I mean, it seems like a really simple question, but it's actually a really profound question. It's actually a question that God asks us regularly in our life. What do you want? Really, what do you want? And they were so stunned by the directness of the question that their answer was, um, where are you staying? Because they, they, <laughs> they didn't know what to say. Uh, another question that Jesus asked, you know, the, the, they're in the middle of uh, the Sea of Galilee, which I had a privilege of seeing last year for the first time. We were in the Holy Land, and it's this wonderful, idyllic kind of lake. It's not that big, actually. And they're halfway across, and the, the lake blows up in this huge storm in the middle of the night, and the boat's going down, and Jesus is asleep in the back. And, you know, probably all of your listeners know the story. And they shake him awake, and he says, why are you so afraid? Hmm. <laughs> well, the obvious answer is because we're about to drown, right? I mean, we're going down fast here. But the reality is that they were heading across the lake from the Jewish side of the lake to the non-Jewish side of the lake to be with people that these 12 followers of Jesus normally wouldn't have anything to do with. And so the question isn't really about this physical storm. It's about the terror of going to be with people that we wouldn't normally hang with, that we shouldn't be with, the unclean, the unwashed, the whomever, put, fill in the blank. And Jesus is really asking, why are you so afraid of that? 
Wow. So we could go on with the other six mm. questions, but I'd like to drill down on these first two. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to contextualize them, John, for our audience, the business leaders, right? Yeah. You're running a business, leading a company, a department, a division. These two questions, what do you want and why are you so afraid? What, how does that apply to a Christian in business? You know, your entire life and world is around leadership development. Just those two, let's drill down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so the first question, what do you want, is actually a principle, a, a really foundational question that we have to ask and answer regularly. And the, the funny paradox of that question is that what Jesus actually wants us to want is him. So we think we have an answer to that question. Well, I want this. I want sales to increase. I want my team to come together. I want to be able to deliver on this mission. I want, but what Jesus is really asking is, are you pursuing me? Do you want me? And so I'm a small business owner. I'm an entrepreneur, small business owner, like some of the listeners to this podcast. And so I have certain desires, but I want I want to be checking those desires regularly against the desires of God is what I want, what he wants for me to deliver through my life and through my marriage and through my parenting and through my business and through my grandparenting and so forth. And so it's a extremely important question. It's, it's, it's the first question that Jesus asks, what do you want? Right, And so when the disciples of John said, well, where are you staying? His response to that was, come and see, right? And so that's actually the opening invitation that Jesus gives to people kind of at the beginning of the journey or when we're reigniting the journey of following him. It's like, you know, just just follow after me for a while. Come and see, check it out, check me out. Watch what I do, listen to what I say. And on the basis of that, they became followers. That is really, really solid. And so as leaders, we, we need to be asking, what is it that Jesus... What does God want? ...want for us? From us, for us. So right? what about that second question? As a leader, you know, this question of why are you so afraid? What's the, yeah. what's the application there? Yeah, so the question behind the question there, so again, the setting is they're crossing across this lake to go to the other side. And, and the continuation of that story is that they're met on the other side. It's like a Stephen King novel, right? So they're met on the other side <laughs> by a man who is naked, bound in chains, screaming, surrounded by pigs. So this is not, you know, what good Jewish followers of Jesus, this is not what they were wanting to do, right? Be surrounded by a naked man in chains, screaming, surrounded by pigs. This is, this is all bad. The question behind the question that I write about in the book is they're going over to the other side. And so the question is, what's the other side for you? What's the other side for you? So as a, as a business person, um, what's the other side that perhaps God is calling you to cross over to with how you're leading your business, for how you're interacting with your team, for what customer you're pursuing or how you're pursuing them? I, I was leading a, um, a group of leaders at a church a number of years ago when, when, the, when the book first came out, and I was taking this, this leadership team in this church through this, and, 
and I asked this question of the group, and then I said, no, have a, have a conversation at your table around this, this what's the other side for you uh-huh. with, with your teammates? And, and all of a sudden, this really uncomfortable kind of awkward silence falls over the room, and I could just sense that the, the mojo just was bad, like, just <laughs> bad. Like, what did I just say? I stepped in something here, and I said, what did I, what did I just step in here with you? Because something's just, I can just feel the tension in the room. And so... One of the staff members timidly said, well, uh, actually, honestly, the other side for us is right across the street, literally the other side of the street from our place is low-income housing. And the children from the low-income housing are coming over to our Sunday school classes, but there's a whole contingent of people in the church that don't want them to come over to us because when they do, like our markers disappear and they don't all smell good. They're, they're just not, because this is kind of a suburban, kind of wealthy church, but happens to have this right across the street. And so the other side for us is actually to go literally to the other side of the street wow. and wholeheartedly, open-handedly invite these folks in. That is powerful. It, and- was, a, <laughs> it was a moment for them of, of just honest, it was, it was truly a, a come to Jesus moment. And you think about the the types of business, well, the number of businesses that refuse to make the necessary change with technology, with the change in the marketplace, and they're just not going to make it today. The leader who, the older leader who's like, these millennials, you know, I just can't deal with these young people and they're entitled and this, that, that's their other side. They yes. have to learn how to address and deal with those leaders. In my, in my, so Ray, in my business, man, I work with a variety of different types of business segments. So financial services, for example, that marketplace is changing dramatically. Technology is having a profound impact on tightening the how much money they can make on product sales, for example. The margin is really tight now. And so there's an other side there that's created by technology. I work with some healthcare. Healthcare is dramatically changing and fast and really, and there's an other side there and it's scary. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the unknown of that, there, I mean, it's, it's crossing the sea at night with a big old storm. It's scary <laughs> stuff. And so, and Jesus is there just kind of, it says in scripture that, uh, that he stood up and he rebuked, he rebuked the storm. Yes. And then he asked calmly of the disciples. So he didn't rebuke the disciples for being afraid. He rebuked the storm, and then he calmly asked the disciples. Oh, I love that. That is really, really good. So, John, this book, uh, The Eight Questions That Awaken Your Faith, how could our audience get a copy? How could they learn more? Because these are intriguing questions that we've already addressed. It's on uh, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. Just go with the title, Dare to Answer. You can purchase it there. Oh, fantastic. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about one of the other books for just a couple Mm -hmm. of moments here. Do Less, Be More, (laughs) The Life-Changing Power of Focus. Okay, I'm intrigued. Tell me more about doing less. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the lessons learned for me working with leaders is that many, if not most, of the leaders with whom I work are extraordinarily busy, Yes. too busy. And technology aids and abets that. It allows us, if we choose, 
if we allow it to, to be on 24-7. So there's a, there's a beautiful side of time. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Luddite. I mean, I, I like my iPhone, okay? And I like being able to be connected. And our younger son uh, lived and volunteered in rural South Africa for a year, and we could be in touch with him for free which is just amazing to me. I don't know, I have no clue how that even works, but we could, we could keep in touch with him. So that's terrific. And it can easily overwhelm us as, as leaders and, and as just men and women. And so the intent of the book is, it's not a book on simplicity. You know, it's not, you know, go sell all your stuff and live in a tiny home. What it really is, is a series of chapters to help people become clear on what it is that God has gifted you in? What is it that you feel called to? What are the core values that you want to live out? And how do you know if you're in and out of alignment of those core values? Given all of that, what is the, the vision that you have for both your life and your work? And so the book is meant to be a really pretty practical narrative around that. And then at the end of each chapter, some tools around that. So how do I do less and make the choices of what do I say yes to and my yes remains yes? What do I say no to and my no remains no? So that I can be most effective in my life and work and ministry and marriage and so forth. Okay. So as I'm listening, uh, I've got a couple of uh, friends that I had recent conversation with, and I just know how they would respond to what you just said. John, that sounds great but you don't understand how much I've got on my plate. I've got this business that I'm trying to grow. I've got all these employees I'm responsible for. Mm. I've got my family. I've got my church. I've got my pastor wanting me to serve on this committee and that, and I'm asked to be involved on this board and that. And John, I am just overwhelmed, and you're telling me that I need to do less, and by doing less, I'll accomplish more. Would you help me process that so that I can go help my friend process that? Yes. So the first answer is it's not, it's not easy. And in fact, it's countercultural. Okay. Because by the worldly culture, the water we swim in, we're rewarded for being busy. It's honorable to be busy. I mean, yeah. I've, got, I've got any number of friends that just glory in how many miles they fly on Delta Airlines every year. Are you a diamond guy? No, I'm just a platinum guy. Oh, you're just a platinum guy. Ooh, you know. <laughs> So it's countercultural actually to do this. But for me, most recently, a really visceral learning around this was being in Israel last year for two full weeks, being on the ground and being in Jerusalem for one and in Tel Aviv for the second Sabbath. So watching a whole country and culture take a Sabbath, and in Jerusalem in particular, because it's older and more orthodox, traditional, the city shuts down. It's like the United States used to be 50 years ago on Sunday, right? The public transportation doesn't run. There are very few cars on the street. All the Jewish-owned and run businesses are closed. And it's not actually just stopping and laying on the couch with the remote and watching professional sports or whatever, or playing 18 holes of golf. It's a looking back of what God has done in the week before and a looking forward to what it is he is intending for you to do and preparing for you to do in the upcoming week and celebrating that with family and friends. And the impact of that is that in spite of the fact that they're surrounded by people and countries that want to annihilate them, Israel perennially is ranked as being one of the happiest countries in the world. Well, I don't think that's random. So there's, I just read a wonderful book by Wayne Mueller titled Sabbath. 
In it, he has a number of wonderful quotes, one of which, though, is our willingness to rest depends on what we believe we will find there. Oh, I like that. I think the, our willingness to rest depends on what we believe we will find there. I've been guilty of this too. Um, I think many times my unwillingness to rest, my unwillingness to slow down is because I'm scared of what might happen if I do. What might I discover? What might I feel that I'm anesthetizing myself to by moving so quickly, by deluding myself that it, if, it, if it is to be, it's up to me. That is such profoundly bad advice, right? <laughs> it just isn't true. That's right. That's right. So what is it that most people think they will find at rest? Well, I'm an experiment of one. I can, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I've observed and worked with and coached a lot of leaders, but... You know, we might find that if I'm not doing it all, things actually hum along better without my doing it all. Or we might find that some of the the pain that I'm uh, ignoring actually really surfaces when I slow down enough to actually really feel the pain. Or we might find that some of what I'm pursuing by being so overly busy isn't really healthy or good or God-honoring for me to pursue. Or we might find that some of the things that we're saying yes to under the guise of, you know, the church asks and I say yes, and the church asks again and I say yes, and the church asks again and I say yes three more times, some of that actually isn't because I'm such a Jesus-following disciple. It's because my ego loves it when I get honored for doing all this stuff in the church. So when we allow ourselves to do less and to slow down some and to have Sabbath built into our life, whether it's a day or whether it's a part of the day or whether, you know, however, I I tend to drive in the car and have the radio turned off. Yeah. And so for me, that's just a simple practice where it allows me during those 15, 30, 40 minutes, whatever, to just quiet my mind some and to, since no one is talking, I might actually be listening. Yeah, that's really good. And as as I'm listening to what you're sharing, I'm thinking our culture here in America particularly, it's always about more, more, new, 2.0, 3.0, new and improved, revised, bigger, better, prettier, whatever. And this is countercultural to your point because this is about gratitude and contentment. I'm even thinking this, our annual holiday of Thanksgiving, which is the day we're supposed to just take some time, be grateful, and be. all the stores open up for the midnight madness leading into Christmas. Right. We can't even take one day. Right. <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I overuse this saying, but words create worlds, right? So words, even the words we use are really important. Just the word content. When was the last time you, you asked a person, say, you know, Ray, how are you? And your answer is content. Yeah, it just doesn't and happen. It doesn't happen because because content has become, uh, the, the word now kind of connotes that you're a slacker. If you're content, you must not be striving. And if you're not striving, you must be kind of slacking. Well, what if, what if content is actually good? I mean, what if, what if God wants us to be content? Content in his grace, content in the beauty that he surrounds us with, content in our friendship. What if? That's not slacking at all. That's actually celebrating what God has brought into our life. John, I'm sure right now that that somebody just like had to pull their car over. Somebody just had to stop running as they're listening to this and go, content. Oh, my goodness. That's almost like a curse word. 
and you're just reminding us of the importance that that may just be, I mean, it is a holy word. Yeah. It is a holy word, and we've yeah. kind of like gotten rid of it. Well, you know, Paul says, I've learned, learned what it is to be content. Right? In all things. In all things. And then he, and he lists kind of the, the, the continuum of, of terrible and great. But in the midst of all of that, he says, I've learned what it is. And, and it is a learning. This is not, I don't think, natural for us. Our natural sinful self is to be discontent. And then we're bombarded with millions of messages every day in marketing that are, the intent of marketing is to make us discontent. No doubt. Right. So if you don't own this car, ooh, baby, you're you're probably you probably aren't driving a very nice car. Or you're a you loser. Look, you know, look like this, smell like this, whatever, whatever. And so yeah. that's the whole intent of everything. That's the water we swim in is to make us discontent, and that's actually not that's not the life of faith. Well, you know, the studies and the research that I've read lately is about the effects of social media. Everybody's posting their best, their vacation, their high points, you know, their kids that just made honor roll, all these wonderful things. But then it puts others into depression because they don't feel like they measure up. So even social media and the pace at which we get information is contributing to this. Yeah, so I have to, I, confession is good for the soul. So I have to confess one thing here publicly, and this is going to be recorded. So I've, <laughs> the, the reality is for me personally, I'm just speaking for me personally here. A couple of years ago, a very good friend of mine, colleague of mine in business, he's a um, PhD psychologist and Fuller Seminary grad. He's a man of deep faith that I do some work uh, uh, with together. Um, and he showed me a, a bunch of research around social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the direct connect between those and unhappiness and encouraged me to get off of social media. And I did. I do not have a Twitter account. I have a Facebook page for my book, but I don't monitor it. I'm, I'm terrible at self-promotion. I am a Luddite when it comes to social media. And for me personally, my happiness went up because mm-hmm. I was not reading the curated life experiences of other people. And I wasn't checking how many likes I get on something compared to how many likes somebody, which is my na- my natural tendency is to do that. And so I, I have no social media. And I'm not recommending this. I'm just saying For you. There's, there's a lot of research that actually shows that it is not healthy. That is incredible. It's not healthy. Well, uh, hopefully uh, someone just got encouraged by that advice right there that maybe, just maybe, they'll apply that for them as well. So uh, I can't believe this, John. We're getting near the end of this conversation. Mm. I'd like to transition into kind of our advice and insight section. As, as you look back over the course of your career as a business owner in corporate and then perhaps even now as a coach and consultant, what's the biggest mistake you could recall making in business? Um, what did you learn from it and how did your faith get you through it? Uh, that's a that's not a short list actually. <laughs> I'm a I'm an experiential learner, and so I tend to uh, you know how does a person gain good judgment? Usually by exercising bad judgment and then learning from it. And I've had a number of those experiences. Maybe the one of the hardest lessons I learned was in my career in financial services. I was a you know fast rising, up and coming, just killing it sort of guy, and. Um, about halfway through the 14 years, I was offered the opportunity to be a, a managing partner of a, a whole region headquartered back in our, our hometown of Milwaukee. At the time, Carol and I were living in Seattle. 
And so I accepted the role, moved back there ahead of, we had sold our house, but Carol and our sons hadn't joined us yet, moved back there and was just starting it and then discovered that it was quite different um, than what I what had been portrayed. It wasn't a going concern, it was really more of a, uh, it, it, was a, it was a startup at best. I mean, it, there was some really difficult ethical problems in the region. There was some really difficult, just a whole host of bad stuff going on, which I hadn't asked enough questions or wasn't paying attention. And so for me, one of the, one of the lessons I learned in that, the, the person who had, who had hired me into that had really, really misrepresented the, the opportunity pretty substantially. And this may sound naive, but I, I, I made a, a, a covenant with myself from that point forward, which I've stuck with, which has really been um, healthy and beneficial. And I do this both in, in saying who I say yes and no to as clients of my practice, as leadership development practice, I, is to pay close attention to two things. One is, is this person nutritious or toxic? Do they give or take energy? and to try as much as possible to be with people that are nutritious, that are energy giving. Doesn't mean that I have to agree with them about everything, I don't, but it means that they are, they are people that are nutritious men and women. And the other is, and, and I've, I've been really diligent about this of trying to scope out business opportunities to not work with people I don't love, trust, and respect. Hmm. Which means that I say no with some regularity, yeah. actually. Yeah, I, I don't recall who said it, but uh, the the saying is "no" is a complete sentence. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And you know, there's there's incredible value and wisdom in that. Just that approach, John. Even at a macro level, as a business owner, is to and I know in the startup mode, you you kind of take whoever's going to pay the bills. But as a business matures, as an organization matures, you really are wise to pay attention to what clients you bring on. Because is this going to be healthy for our organization to serve this customer or this client? Or is this going to take away from us? Are we going to have to spend so much time on this that it's going to jeopardize how we serve other clients? So I wrote this down, you know, and I'm going to go even beyond is this person, but is this opportunity or situation nutritious or toxic? Is yes. it going to be life-giving to us as an organization or life-taking? Is that a fair Yes. Application of that. Yes, and, and actually, um, I mean, maybe I maybe I'm blessed at you know at this age and at this stage with the gift of of hindsight and and with, you know hopefully I've been paying attention and learning along the way. But I I even think in the startup phase, um, saying yes to everything uh, to to pay the bills is not necessarily a good way. Even in the startup phase, yeah. I think yeah. actually being being discerning and and trying to uh, because because everything that we say yes to every person every opportunity you say yes to means that there's something else that may be considerably better and more aligned and more life giving that we may not be able to say yes to because we don't have the the time the energy the capacity yeah. the, to yeah. do that That's and great. so That's great. Yeah. it might mean that the startup takes a little bit longer but but long term. I believe it's it's going to be more life-giving, more joyful, more fulfilling, and likely more profitable, actually, yeah, 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 because right. of those first three. That's fantastic. If you could go back and advise the 20-year-old John, <laughs> so let's go back in time, you're sitting across the table, what advice would you give to the 20-year-old you? <laughs> Well, first of all, the twenty-year-old John probably wouldn't listen to any advice. <laughs> the uh, 
I was, uh, at 20, I was the embodiment of the statement that uh, men grow up only when it's the last available option. So I was that guy, right? <laughs> um, I actually got a great piece of advice a little past my 20th birthday um, that I would give as the advice I would give to myself again even earlier. A wiser, older person when I was in my first year in financial services, and I was I was off to the races. I was just selling, and I was shocking myself at how good I was at this. Not I was completely unexpected, really. Never having any been in business before, never didn't know anything about financial services, yeah. but I was I was killing it early on, and this this older, wiser first manager that I had pulled me aside and said, John, uh, no amount of success in business will make up for you failing at home. I can't tell you, and I've had the opportunity to tell him what impact that had on me, but I can't tell you the number of times that that has come back to mind as I'm making choices about what to say um, yes and no to. And so the advice I would give myself at 20 and that I continue to give myself at 62 is to keep it in balance, to keep it focused, to focus on the, the right things, to keep my faith foremost in my life as foundational. It's the, it's the rock of my marriage with Carol, um, to keep her foremost in my life as my best friend and my life partner. And the rest of this stuff will follow, but no amount of success with the other stuff will make up for me failing at that. That's fantastic. That is so powerful. Thank you for that. That's probably a great segue then into my last question. Uh, and our regular listeners here at Bottom Line Faith know this is always my last question. It's based out of Proverbs 4.23, where Solomon says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows all of life. So John, I'd like you to fill in the blank for us. Above all else, what would be the advice you would leave with us today? Mm. Uh, don't go it alone. So um, we, are, we are created uh, in the image of God. And the, the image of God, God is, a, God is a community sort of God. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want us to go alone. He created us to be in community with others. In my, in my life personally and in the observation of leaders over the course of my business life where I've seen leaders get derailed, and where I personally have, have been derailed periodically is when I'm going it alone, yeah. um, when I'm not in community. And so one of the remarkable things I know, Ray, about the work that you're doing with Truth at Work is that you're putting men and women into community, and yes. they're with each other regularly, and they're telling the truth with each other, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if we're going to guard our heart, it's not a solitary effort. Uh, it, it begins with us, surely, but we need others that are on the journey with us that are asking us the tough questions and holding us accountable to what we say and do mm, and so holding our toes to the coals of the commitments that we make. And um, because if we, if we go it alone, uh, you know, David, when, uh, when kings were supposed to go out to war, he stayed home and was up on the roof and saw Bathsheba and the rest of that we all know because he was alone. No doubt. Right? And so my, in order for me to guard my heart, I, I have to be in community with other 
godly men and women who can encourage me and hold me accountable and walk this out with me, do life with me. I love that. So above all else, don't go it alone. John, how can our audience learn more about you, connect with you, um, maybe talk with you about coming and working with their company? What would be the best way for them to reach out? Easiest way to connect with me personally is by email. It's just jbusaker, B-U-S-A-C-K-E-R, at johnbusaker.com is the easiest way there. And then uh, website is lifeworth.com. Dot com or johnbusacker.com, either one. So Okay, yeah. fantastic. So thank you for being our guest here today my at pleasure. Bottom Line Faith. Wow, folks, you ought to see my note page. It is jam-packed with incredible insights from John Busacker up here in Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota area. And just as I'm reflecting here, this whole conversation, I, I'm going to center back around from his book about Be More, do less. And as he said, it's not just about simplicity. It's about what we're focusing on and keeping the main things as the main things and Sabbath and rest and so many principles, so many insights here that we've learned from John. And that's what we're trying to do here is to encourage you as a Christ follower in business and in leadership. As he was just talking about, you know, you might be physically alone right now. You might be riding in your car. You might have your headphones on, on your treadmill or going for a walk or whatever. And that's fine. But what John just reminded us of, you can't do life that way. You can't do business that way. God has wired us to live and work and thrive in community. And so what we're trying to do here at Bottom Line Faith is encourage you. We're in this with you. You're not alone. You're not in this leadership journey. Christ is right there with you every day. So we are trying to be that blessing and that encouragement. And on that vein, if you are a Christ follower and you are a business leader and you're looking for the kind of community that John just reminded us of, I would really like to encourage you to check out our website at truthatwork.org. That's truthatwork.org and click on the roundtables tab on that homepage and learn about one of our Truth at Work roundtables that are gathering in communities all across the country. You will be encouraged if you're participating. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Bottom Line Faith. I am your host, Ray Hilbert, encouraging you to live out your faith every day in the marketplace. God bless, and we'll see you next time. Bottom Line Faith is brought to you by Truth at Work. If you'd like to hear about new episodes or listen to past episodes, visit us online at bottomlinefaith.org. You can also subscribe to the show through Google Play and iTunes.